1: The file is for personal use to share with friends, family, and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Labrie Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Labrie Fellowship. I'm going to go ahead and get started, and I call this lecture What Are Fathers For?, and uh when you pro- if you read that or saw that you might thought you're in for an answer to that question um and you might get something of an answer tonight but i just wanted to start with a little bit of a caveat uh a few caveats there's so much to say about this matter there's so many ways to come at it and i know i won't cover all of them but i'm really i'm hopeful there'll be a good discussion uh together after um and I have a few more caveats, actually, to begin with. Uh, I told you it was going to be a pretty pretty powerful uh, intro here. But I am a father, in case anyone was wondering. I've been a father for the last 11 years. I have a father. Uh, and there's, uh, again, there's all sorts of ways to, uh, people convey advice or thoughts on fathering, opinions on what fathers are for, that... Uh, it sometimes goes in that genre of uh, of content, whether it's a YouTube video or a book or an airport seminar, that I was something and I stunk at it and now I'm great. Uh, that is not what tonight's lecture is going to be. I'm presenting this with a lot of humility, but I've had a lot of conversations uh, with folks in my nearly 10 years or I guess nine years of being here at Labrie, mostly with men, uh, some younger men, some older men, Who, for various reasons, some good, some bad, uh, don't see themselves as ever becoming fathers. Don't want to become fathers. And so part of my hope in this talk is to encourage, which is literally means to put courage in, uh, those who might imagine themselves as, for whatever reason, exempt from becoming a father. Uh, Being a father takes courage. And a great quote that I read on fatherhood came from former President Barack Obama, who said, any fool can have a child. That doesn't make you a father. It's the courage to raise a child that makes you a father. I love that. It's the courage to raise a child that makes you a father. Fatherhood is not for the faint of heart. It's in many ways a school of humility, of constantly brushing up against One's limits, one's insecurities, one's self-centeredness, one's proclivities to project onto others. Um, but it's also a school of grace, of forgiveness, of deep joy, and it holds the potential for real transformation. And it can instill what uh, ethicist, kind of the best-named ethicist out there right now, O. Carter Sneed uh, he works at uh, Notre Dame but what he says in this really fascinating book, What It Means to Be Human uh, he, he calls, he says one of the things that fatherhood can instill is an openness to the unbidden he calls this a disposition of welp- welcoming and hospitality towards others in all their uniqueness and particularity a toleration of imperfection and difference. He says that this is a virtue that is most clearly demonstrated and learned in a parent's acceptance of their child as a gift, rather than a project or a vessel into which a parent pours his own hopes and dreams. He goes on to say that this requires a moral imagination of fathers, the ability and the skill to make the goods of someone else your own moral imagination to make someone else's betterment or good part of your own. Make, make it something you're concerned with. And I just want to say no one is born a good father, but good fathers are made through accepting the work of fathering the children they have been given. There is an author and YouTube person named John green. Does anyone know John green? I did not. Okay. I didn't know of him until I found this quote from him. Uh, But he says, the nature of impending fatherhood is that you're doing something that you're unqualified to do. And then you become qualified by doing it. So that's, actually, that was all part of that first caveat uh, (laughs) that I was saying. And uh, I want to say just another kind of caveat. And I want to begin at the outset here with slightly, a slightly more personal, practical uh, exercise for us. A lot of talks at Labrie that I've given end with something that's a little more practical, the, the so what, the now what, uh, the applied part of a lecture. But this tonight it's a little front-loaded uh, in that way. Being a father and having a father are not singular experiences. I don't know what it is like to have your father... Uh, You don't know what it's like to have my father. And I actually don't know what it's like to have me as a father uh, completely. And I'm aware that for some, uh, their father is their hero, uh, which is wonderful. For others, their father was a petty tyrant. This is a very painful thing. Uh, For others, their father is kind of a mystery to them, even though he was physically present. Perhaps he was emotionally and relationally absent kind of an ambiguous painful thing to to know how to navigate and for others their father was actually actually absent something to be mourned your father could have been a source of great comfort or encouragement again literally puts courage in you Uh, or your father could be a source of fear anxiety pain and confusion and i think often fathers are a mixture uh, of those things So just aware of the wide range of emotions and histories that many of us have with our fathers, as we enter together to consider this vast terrain of fatherhood, I want to share a quotation from the novel The Bonfire of the Vanities. Does anyone know this? This, Yeah, I've actually never read it. Again, just another quote. Um, uh, Because it it offered me a way to think about my own father in a way that I had never really consciously done before. And I got actually this from... This book called *The Intentional Father: uh, A Practical Guide to Raise Sons of Courage and Character* by John Tyson, who is a pastor in New York City. He's also an Australian, so just just putting that out there. You can make a decision if you can trust an Australian. That's a dig It's Sue Morell, in case she ever hears this lecture, an Australian friend. But um, uh, so this is this is a line from the book. It's, it's the narrator explaining something of the main character Sherman's relationship with his father. Sherman made a terrible discovery that men make about their fathers sooner or later, that the man before him was not an aging father, but a boy, a boy much like himself, a boy who grew up and had a child of his own and as best as he could, out of a sense of duty or perhaps love, adopted a role called being a father. So that this child would have something mythical and infinitely important. A protector who would keep a lid on all the chaotic and catastrophic possibilities of life. So at the, now I'm a little less interested in that second part. The father as the protector, the holder back, holding back of chaos. Uh, but the realization that Sherman's father, like my father, like your father like all of their fathers, were once boys. Boys who, like all children, were searching for love, security, and care. And the question arises in childhood, in their search for love, what might they have found? Was there someone to guide them with care, with attention, with purpose into adulthood? Did they stumble their way alone, merely adopting a role of being a father, like Sherman's dad? Or was there someone there to help them along the path towards a more positive vision of adulthood? Tyson asks the reader to take a moment and imagine their own father as a child in search of love. It's quite a moving thing for me to do. Most of us have complicated or difficult relationships with our father. And a part of the process of making peace with our father, making peace with ourselves, living the life we have, in whatever ways we need to, is to begin to see them holistically. Uh, Evidently, Carl Jung, the psychologist, taught that we become adults when we don't just view our parents through a chronological bias, that they're older, that they know more, that they provide for us, but that we begin to see them as the broken, struggling people they, in fact, are. This allows us to have a compassionate understanding of them. They were once young too, looking for love and security, perhaps finding it, maybe not finding it, maybe entering into adulthood, struggling with the exact same feelings of insecurity and unreadiness that many of us experience. Someone who really did this quite beautifully is uh, a man named Marvin Alasky, whose father was completely distant. completely absent from his life, physically present. They played baseball one time, uh, but his dad was gone in the morning and gone all day um, and died when Marvin was an adult. Uh, Still very much a mystery to him. And he spent countless hours trying to make sense of his father's life. And he actually wrote a biography of his father. He did a lot of research. His father was in World War II, returned home after going to the concentration camps right after uh, they were freed and seeing some pretty horrific things. Uh, And he's trying to sympathetically or empathetically get into his father's shoes to understand why perhaps his father was so distant. What was his father dealing with? Uh, And so he writes this towards the end of the book. It's a a, a sweet book in a lot of ways. Um, It's very sad, too, though. <clears throat> but he says this towards the end. I realized in the course of this research how self-centered I was, not only as a child, but as an adult. Why did I have so little interest in seeing my parents, not primarily as people to meet my needs or not meet my needs, but as individuals with their own struggles? I never really cared to find out about them. Then he went to the great lengths of actually going to get his dad's college records, military records, and piece together uh, a story of his father's life. But it's, an, it's, a, it's a, a, I think, a companionable book for someone who perhaps feels a similar way about their own father, that they're <laughs> mysteries to them. <clears throat> now, uh, there's, there's no doubt a myriad of ways that our fathers have failed us, and I don't want to downplay them, cover them over. Excuse them, push them aside. I, I don't think I could even understand all of them. Uh, I don't know where you are in your path towards making peace with your father or understanding yourself as differentiated from your father, and I just don't want to assume anything. And the path is hard work, and it takes more than listening to a lecture or writing a lecture uh, about this. And, but I think it's important. I, I think it's actually really vital. Uh, An author, a spiritual guru, uh, someone who I really actually don't care for most of the time is a guy named Richard Rohr, who I think actually has some really insightful stuff on this matter. But one of the things he says is, if we don't transform our pain, we will most assuredly transmit it. If our pain isn't transformed, it will be transmitted. If we don't deal with the baggage and hurt that our fathers have knowingly or unknowingly brought into our lives, it's really possible that we'll pass it on to another, perhaps even our own children, if we have them someday. We will carry it with us unless we in some way address it, which of course is much more than listening just to this lecture. And I've often wondered if the untransformed pain of a father to a son Uh, is what's sort of the root of listening to a lot of young men, and even older men say they would just never ever want to be a father uh, themselves. Uh, But being a father is difficult work. Uh, It is the work, I think, in many ways, of being present to, of seeing, and delighting in the children that you've been given. I'm going to come back to that a couple more times. Uh, If I'd actually made a PowerPoint presentation for you tonight, one of the pictures I was going to show you was an array of 15 covers of recent issues of Parenting Magazine. And I was going to ask you, you, what's surprisingly missing from all of these covers? Uh, And you would have said, fathers. Because all the covers, except for one that was a gay couple with a child, were a mother with children. Father was not even on the cover. It, it's, quite, it's quite telling. And it feeds on a common stereotype of fathers in contemporary culture. They're disposable. They're off working. They're watching a game in their man cave, or who knows where. And, but when it comes to important matters of parenting, perhaps with the exception of discipline, fathers just aren't as important as mothers. That's the common stereotype. This assumption of the disposable father... It's actually challenged in a really interesting recent book called Do Fathers Matter? What Science is Telling Us About the Parent We've Overlooked. It's an interesting book, uh, which chronicles the way, really until the 70s, most scientific, neurological, social, scientific research on children and children's development more or less presumed fathers weren't necessary. So they just didn't address the role of the father Uh, in in the life of of his children. And this book goes into all sorts of crazy studies that people have done subsequently uh, to show the significance. And the answer to the question, Do Fathers Matter?, is a resounding yes. Uh, The author's name is Paul Rayburn. Um, Yeah, it's it's an interesting read that it covers all sorts of stuff. Uh, But... This stereotype is also taken up in Robert Griswold's book, which is a historical book called Fatherhood in America. And it surveys the history of, does anyone want to take a guess? Fatherhood in America. I just felt like I needed to joke at some point, (laughs) or some laughter. And it argues that fathers were once much more involved in the lives of their children. Pre-industrial work patterns on farm or in family-owned stores from the 1600s to the 1800s allows men tons of time with their children. In addition, fathers also took responsibility for the moral instruction of their children. Child-rearing manuals uh, from this era, you could think of them as sort of an older equivalent of mom blogs, in a way, uh, were directed primarily to men, to fathers, because they may, the fathers are the ones who were making decisions and were involved with and present to their children, children saw their fathers a lot more because the work and home weren't as separate as they are now. Though since COVID, work and home, for some, is is much more uh, closely tied together. But fathers had this important role in instructing children, especially sons, about their future, about work, and had just much more in time to engage with them in moral discussion and just sort of in regular discussion. Then, uh, that we would commonly associate with mothers waiting for kids to come home from school with a snack. And during this time, fathers were not I, primarily identified with being providers, uh, phys- like financial providers, bringing being a breadwinner. And this is in part because men and women contribute to the task of providing for the home. In colonial times, the household was what one historian refers to as a little factory, that produced clothing, furniture, bedding, candles, and other accessories. It was taken for granted that women provided for the family along with men. So it's really not until after the Industrial Revolution that fathers began to work outside of their home and away from their children for the majority of their day. And so their work shifted from moral instruction to breadwinning, to being the provider, to bringing home the bacon. Uh, The provider model of fatherhood became, according to Griswold, the most central model of what it means to be a father. And in many ways, I think it remains so today. (coughs) Theologian um, uh, Julie Hanlon Rubio, in her book, A Christian Theology of Marriage and Family, um, uh, comments (coughs) uh, on Griswold's research, saying, uh, or makes, makes this connection, saying it's not insignificant that in our culture, mothering means nurturing, while fathering means supplying sperm for one's offspring, and perhaps supporting that offspring until it can support itself. The breadwinner role constitutes a primary way modern American men have understood their responsibilities as father. Both Hansen and Rubio believe that this model, sadly too often, comes at the expense of relationships. The increased pressure on men to provide more and more for their families diverted them from strengthening relationships with their wives and children. They were expected to be good providers first, and if they managed also to be loving or tender husbands and fathers, that was admirable, but not by any means required. This, of course, then just sends a message to the fathers that they themselves are disposable too. So the shift in economy and culture changes the home and actually undergirds a statement, uh, that I just thought was interesting from, uh, a cultural commentator named Alan Noble in his book, You Are Not Your Own. Uh, it really hit me like a, hit me quite hard. He was responding to traditionalist critiques of, of feminism that, uh, criticize women for abandoning motherhood for a career. And he says it's ironic because historically men have made a practice of abandoning fatherhood for a career. And I, I'm not trying to paint a picture of a golden era of fatherhood that needs to be recovered. Um, I'm also not knocking uh, the, the breadwinner provision model. I think there's actually quite a dignity and quite, quite a gift a father can bring to provide. But that, if that's all that's required of being a father, I think, I think that's an anemic take. I think that's a lacking take. And I'm just making the point that this common conception of fatherhood, primarily as a provider, is historically contingent. And it has come with significant cost. The cost is a father's absence from the life of his children. Now, of course, the 60s and 70s came, gender roles were questioned, new ideal emerged that sit alongside the provider, uh, that where fathers were now nurturing and more present. Uh, but again, that was alongside of or sort of subject to primarily being a provider. And the stereotype of the providing dad who goes to work, comes home and is cold, distant, and clueless continues on. Look at child books. Don't look at the Berenstein Bears books because they're just a waste of your time. But look at other children's books. Look at movies, songs, films. There's this reinforcing cycle of presentations of fathers as being clueless, absent, uninvolved, cold, emotionally, unintelligent. Um, And that creates a pattern, I think. That creates a form that young fathers assume just is the norm. And I just rhymed. Uh, But what is tragic about this um, is that I think children long for their fathers. Children long to be seen and known as well as know their fathers. Bruce Springsteen, uh, the American rock and roll icon, commented that rock and roll is all about longing for a father's attention. He says this, it's all one embarrassing scream of daddy. It's just fathers and sons and you're out there proving something to somebody in the most intense way possible. It's like, Hey, I was worth a little more attention than I got. You blew that one big guy. Uh, so even when we grow out of the phase where we say, Daddy, look at me, look at me, Daddy. Springsteen's comment makes me wonder uh, uh, if we ever actually shake off that desire. Or take the longer thoughts of author Paul Ars- Austere in his memoir about the death of his absentee father called the invention of solitude it's quite um it's a beautiful book this is a longer read but he says this earliest memory his absence for the first years of my life he would leave for work early in the morning before i was awake and come home long after i had been put to bed i was my mother's boy when i lived in her orbit i was a little moon circling her gigantic earth a moat in the sphere of her gravity, and I controlled the tides, the weather, the forces of feeling. His refrain to her was, don't fuss so much, you'll spoil him. But my health was not good. And she used this to justify the attention she lavished on me. We spent a lot of time together, she in her loneliness and I in my cramps, waiting patiently in doctor's offices for someone to quell the insurrection that continually raged in my stomach. Even then, I would cling to those doctors in a desperate sort of way, wanting them to hold me. From the very beginning, it seems, I was looking for my father, looking frantically for anyone who resembled him. Later memories, a craving, my mind always ready to deny the facts at the slightest excuse. I mulishly went on hoping for something that was never given to me, or given to me so rarely and arbitrarily that it seemed to happen outside the range of normal experience, in a place where I would never be able to live for more than a few moments at the time. It was not that he disliked me. It was just that he seemed too distracted, unable to look in my direction. And more than anything, I wanted him to take notice of me. Anything, even the least thing, was enough. How, for example, when the family once went to a crowded restaurant on a Sunday, and we had to wait for a table... My father took me outside, produced a tennis ball, from where? Put a penny on the sidewalk and proceeded to play a game with it, uh, with me. Hit the penny and with the tennis ball. I could not have been more than eight or nine years old. In retrospect, nothing could have been more trivial. And yet the fact that I had been included, that my father had casually asked me to share his boredom with him, nearly crushed me with happiness. And it's also not just, I think, fathers and sons. I think in some way it's also true for daughters. Margot Main, who's a clinical psychologist who specializes in eating disorders, she coined the term father hunger to diagnose particular eating disorders in young women whose experience of their father's absence manifests itself in unhealthy relationships towards hunger and food. Longing for a father is deeply human. A father who is present, who sees, and who delights in the children he has been given. <clears throat> and children who long for a father, when they don't find one, tend to find trouble. Lots of trouble. Do Fathers Matter, that book that I mentioned before by Paul Rayburn, talks about some of the really wild sociological uh, research that, um, that indicates that families without fathers are seriously disadvantaged. Children without fathers are more likely to live in poverty, have emotional and behavioral problems with the children. They're more likely to go in prison. In fact, only one in five inmates grew up with a father present in their home. And just about 40% of American high school students are currently fatherless. It's 37%, I think, exactly. And there are studies that show the exact opposite, that the involved father benefit is substantial. Uh, one of the studies that was just so weird to me was, uh, where, like, who thought of studying this, was t- looking at rates of teenage pregnancy in Arizona. And, and girls that were around their father enough to recognize his smell were less likely uh, to get pregnant as teenagers. It was just, like, who... Who's funding this? What is this? <laughs> like, but, but Harvard sociologist uh, kind of Robert Putnam uh, sums up some of this research, I think, in a kind of crushing manner. Because uh, he says, the most important decision a child can make in life is choosing what sort of parents they will have. And it's crushing because that's really the one thing they can't ever choose. Um, and research shows there's a, lot, there's a lot that really no factors continually contribute uh, to the flourishing of children like a stable and safe home in particular one with an involved present father to help raise them raising children is very important it might, might sound mundane but raising children is actually really a matter of life and death Young people are struggling today. The rates of suicide, drug use, teenage pregnancy, joining sort of extreme political groups on the left and the right is on the rise. Uh, People are are struggling. Young people are struggling. And I think part of it is because they're not being raised particularly well. Uh, There's lots of other factors. But the concept of raising, does anyone familiar with where that term comes from? So the concept of raising comes from a rather intense tradition rooted in Roman culture. Children were presented before the head of the household, and if the father wanted the child, he would lift the baby up in his arms and hold him or her skyward, sort of like in The Lion King.
2: Uh,
1: But if the man didn't want the child, he would not raise him or her, but would look away and leave the baby on the ground. And then the child was going to be put out for what's called exposure, just left to die. So if the father literally doesn't raise the child, the child dies. Commenting on this, John Tyson, again, in the Intentional Father book, he says, we take this phrase for granted, this raising of a son, but it is a heavy term, isn't it? When we say we're raising a child, what we're actually communicating, based on the history of the phrase, is, I want you. I want you in my life. I'm going to take responsibility for you. I'm going to give you everything I can to help you grow up and mature into the best person you can be. Raising a child um, as the child's father calls for more than provision. It requires presence, seeing, delighting in one's child. I want you in my life. And I don't want to sound sappy or sentimental with that word delight or with seeing or being present to see one's child as the child truly is to see their struggles, their faults, their vices, and yet still to be committed to work with them so that they can mature, develop and flourish to delight in your child in their imperfections in their struggles to differentiate, even in their rebellion. This takes work. Uh, It is not easy to employ a moral imagination to make your child's good part of your own good uh, and to see what they might become and what they might make of themselves in this world and what it requires for a father to help make that possible. So I'm actually going to... I'm moving towards the end of the lecture. I wanted this to be a shorter talk in case uh, folks wanted to talk about it or in case they wanted to go to bed early. Uh, But I want to share, uh, moving towards the end, um, two slightly more personal uh, components of my own life as a father. Um, Not because I've figured something out, but they're just things that I return to regularly. Uh, One is a memory and one is a practice. Uh, And these are sort of treasured parts of my life as a father. So the first is the birth of my oldest son, Jacob. Uh, we were in East Vancouver. Uh, my wife Sarah was really the one who did all the work. Um, yeah. We had a home birth. Uh, we had a doula. Is that right? Was it a doula, or what? It was just midwife. a midwife. a midwife with us? Um, it was a wild night. We actually started the night by watching uh, the Fantastic Mr. Fox, the Wes Anderson claymation movie, oh. and
3: <laughs> Susan.
1: Uh, anyway, and then, yeah, she labored through the night, and then as the sun rose, um, Jacob was born a little after five in the morning. Um, and I will say that night was a night where I was like, I don't always know what this word means, but I'm a feminist now because the strength that Sarah, that Sarah, uh, was on display, the power and, I was like, "This is amazing." The world goes around because women are tough and strong, <laughs> and beautiful and kind and generous. Awesome. But anyway, it was an amazing night. But as Jacob came out, um, as his head came out first, first his head came out. Um, his body was still inside Sarah. I was the first person to see him, uh, and he opened his mouth. And I don't know if you've seen a, a like immediately born baby; their their heads are kind of coned um and he opened his mouth and he looked around at the time i didn't realize he couldn't really see anything because his eyes are covered in uh ambiotic fluid but this was the first child i first baby i'd ever held uh and i then another push came and that moment of what i thought was connection um was met with tons of cries because now he was outside and he was cold and he was he was crying and anyway the moment moved on quickly, um, but I encountered this stranger, this mystery to me. I um, we didn't know if Jacob we didn't know we didn't know the gender we didn't know boy or girl. Um, we had two names, so it was a total surprise. Even at this point, just seeing the face, I didn't know if this was the face of Jacob or perhaps Dottie, that was the uh, other name. We were going for, but it was a moment that was full. It was so full of like meaning and purpose and significance and terror and beauty uh, that I'm still returning to it and unpacking it decades later uh, or not decades, a little over a decade later. Um, and sometimes I read something that puts words to this experience that I had. It was just so full. I just didn't know what all that was going on, uh, but words that helped me make sense of this encounter with this mystery, this stranger who was now my son and who made me a father, um, uh, and I realized. Well, I'm going to read some of it. It comes from this book, um, this O. Carter Snead book, this uh, the, what it means to be human. Um, actually, before I read it, I'm just going to say. Um, yeah, Jacob was just so profoundly weak, uh, so vulnerable, um, he, he was just completely dependent. He was primarily dependent on Sarah, but dependent upon both of us for survival, for care, for protection, and for for who knows what else. And I found myself, um, what, upon refre- reflection later, I mean really, it was just like a split second, I found myself being incredibly more gracious towards my own parents, uh, in particular my own father. If my father was like half as clueless and afraid and terrified meeting me as a little stranger that he was going to raise as a son, as I was in that moment, I just had to see him in a more gracious light. And I was just, I was thankful. When I was born, he didn't know me, but he chose to care for me. Uh, him and my mother—they made my good, my well-being part of theirs. They exercised this moral imagination that uh, Sneed talks about. But Sneed talks about uh, this, and he, uh, this is a little bit of a longer quote too. Um, but he says this: remembering who we are and where we came from in this way should awaken in us, in a profound sense, of gratitude, and a sense that a fitting response to such care is to become the kind of person who makes the goods of others her own, to become one who cares for others without condition or calculation. When one remembers how he came to be who he is, through his sustaining network of unconditional care and concern, he becomes alive to the fact that it is not possible to repay those who supported us. The only response is to extend the same care and concern to others in need. Not because it satisfies a balance owed, but because this is what it means to become one who is responsive to others solely because of their needs, without calculation or self-interest. We will be able to offer such care and concern because, in having received it, we become people capable of extending it to others. Within this framework, one's gaze is not fixed limited to her inner self and its depths. One's attention instead turns outward, understanding that flourishing is becoming a participant and steward in the network of giving and receiving that, consta- that sustains life as humanly lived. This outward-facing vision is augmented, strengthened, and sharpened by memory and moral imagination. I like his language. Networks of giving and receiving um he's the one who actually i used i spoke earlier of saying parenthood fathering is a school of humility and he goes on to speak about that i love this taking one's gaze from outside one's inner world to seeing another and trying to make their good your own good to accept them as a gift to accept a child as a gift rather than a product of rational control or to place our needs uh, and our our unfulfilled desires upon them, and that, at the same time, uh, I around the time Jacob was born, I read Marilyn Robinson's beautiful book Gilead. Uh, and if you haven't read Gilead, I strongly recommend it. Jake, thanks for letting me borrow this copy. Um, and it's it's a, it's a story that is told through a series of letters from a father, an older father. To a very young son that he'll read later in life. Um, the Father is a pastor. It's I just it's an amazing book because Marilyn Robinson is neither a pastor nor a man or a father. But I feel like she's the wisest father pastor I've ever met. <laughs> like, the book is the book is unbelievable. But one of the things she says that to me uh, struck me early on in being a father um, uh, is not directly related to. The, the meeting of a stranger in a child. Uh, but it's more about a difficult person. But I, I think you can make some of the connections. I'm going I'm to read a quote from her. She says, When you encounter another person, it's as if a question is being put to you. So you must think, what is the Lord asking of me in this moment, in this situation? If you confront insult or antagonism, your first impulse will be to respond in kind. But if you think, as it were, this is an emissary sent from the Lord, and some benefit is intended for me, first of all, the occasion to demonstrate my faithfulness, the chance to show that I do in some small degree participate in the grace that saved me, you're free to act otherwise than as circumstances would seem to dictate. You're free to act by your own lights. You're freed at the same time of the impulses to hate or resent that person he probably laugh at the thought that the Lord sent him to you for your benefit and his. But that is the perfection of the disguise, his own ignorance of it. And I am reminded of this precious instruction by my own great failure to live up to it recently. Something about that captures what it's like to meet this stranger who is, is a child and who makes you, makes you a father. Um... The other personal matter that I wanted to share um, is what I started saying to my kids every night before they went to sleep. Um, I tell them that they belong to Jesus, and I tell them that I'm glad to be their dad, and I'm so glad that they're my child. I, if I'm totally honest, I'm not really sure when I started doing this or why I started saying this to them every night, but it's sort of become a little call and response. Uh, and if I, if I don't say it, uh, as I'm like walking out the door, it's like, ahem, <clears throat> um, and I'm called back in. But to be their father is to be uh, in a relationship with them where they're not only dependent upon me and very much Sarah, but I and Sarah, we're also dependent on them. We belong, in a sense, to one another. We're interdependent. I cannot be a father without them. I am theirs and they are mine. They do not belong to me as a possession in some sort of grasping, controlling manner, uh, even though a lot of times I would very much like, I live under the illusion that I do control them or that I would like to. Uh, but we belong to one another. We've been, we're part of this network of giving and receiving. They're not empty vessels in which I'm somehow to find fulfillment and sort of shape them to be little versions of uh, of myself they're a gift uh, that has been given to me and we're dependent on one another and they belong under our roof and in our home for a while but they will go out and become their own person and we all will continue to need one another because i will get older and i will get weaker and while the same vulnerability might not match up between jacob's first moments with me but towards the end of my life lord willing i 'll need some help there as I move to a more vulnerable, weak state and i'm just i also just i 'm just glad that they 're my kids i just it's take it 's not an everyday thing it has not been an easy accomplishment but it 's a joy to be a father um, and i in in actual closing I really don 't always know what to do when people um, When people talk about God as our Father, as a prototype for fatherhood, I I definitely believe in it. I like it. I don't always know how to make a um, one-to-one correlation. But as I've been thinking about it in this lecture, and thinking especially about the work of a father um, is to be present, is to see and to delight uh, in his children, I found myself reflecting on Jesus' baptism. Um, so I'm going to read Matthew's version of this. Then Jesus came from Galilee into the Jordan uh, to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So if we can take anything about fathering from this moment, which is the first words of God the Father in the New Testament, first words are always important. But when a significant moment happens in Jesus' life, his father is there, as is his cousin uh, and his best friend, John. And his presence is felt via the Spirit. And Jesus is known. The Father speaks to him. And what he speaks are words of love. You are my beloved. Words of delight and pleasure. With you I am well pleased. And so this is what I think it can be missing from fatherhood, this is what I long for in my own fatherhood. This is what I want my kids to know, and I think it's one of the things that so many of us don't know, and is upstream from so many of our struggles in life, to not to have never known the delight of a father uh, in their child. And so that I think this is where I'm going to stop at 45 minutes. Um, and I've, I there's so much about fatherhood that I I am there's so much that I didn't touch on or gesture towards or say. Um, I probably chose some peculiar things to say um, but I'd love to have anyone respond in any way. Um, we, I can respond back I don't know if I can answer too many questions but yeah yeah Peter.
4: Uh. I'm just interested in this. What what was your inspiration for this talk?
1: Um. Yeah, I. I mean, it goes back. um, Uh. Partly having a number of people talk to me about their fathers, uh, seemingly out of the blue, we're talking about um, sort of patterns of unwanted behavior or. Struggle to believe that God's good. And then, out of the blue, seemingly to me, uh, questions or, or comments like, I just felt like my dad never liked me. And I was like, oh, weren't we talking about. <laughs> like?" And it's just, I've I just noticed a pattern of listening to people. And um, my son is 11, and he's turning 13, and Uh, I, well, 12 first. first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, yeah. Something about like, yeah, there's something about the impending, um, teenage years and just, um, aware of my own tendency in life to just put things in neutral and coast. And, um, yeah, wanting to father in a more, uh, deliberate way. And so I just started wanting to read more myself and yeah this this book actually is a really um a small book the intentional father by john tyson the australian i think he's a trustworthy australian um they are they exist um but yeah also really captured my imagination and yeah i mean uh, Yeah, this is getting personal. But, um, yeah, realizing I just had stuff. I had a very present father, very kind father. Um, But there are just things I needed to work through uh, in my relationship with him. I was really struck with that Richard Rohr thing. If it's not, whatever's not transformed is transferred. Because I was like, oh, man, I am just, there's things I really don't like my father did, that now I'm doing, why am I doing them? Like, this was what I didn't want to do. Um, I mean, I'm still doing them, even though I'm starting to <laughs> confront them. But. So, I don't know, those are some of the, the things that have sort of led into, uh, um, yeah, led, led into it.
0: A lot more about like the father moon, or they use that language. Yeah, a lot yeah. More than, you don't really hear the mother moon. Yeah. In the language as much. And thinking of, who's um, uh, the guy who wrote, uh, Wild at Heart? Song, uh, like, John Eldridge. Fathers. Yeah, yeah. 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 On father moon, and that's a big part. And of course, I mean, that's maybe a different vision
1: of fatherhood than your. Yeah, yeah. But I think.
0: I think it's interesting, or at least notable. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on what that's about, or, or why there's kind of more language around, I guess, internal neglect than internal <laughs> neglect. Yeah. Or yeah.
1: I just, re- I just remembered last week Jeff repeated all the questions into this, so I'm going. To, so, Taylor just, <laughs> Taylor just asked the question of why. Uh, why is there more of an emphasis on the father wound than the mother wound in some of this? Is that? Yeah. Is that, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. That's, I don't. I don't actually know. Um, I, I have thoughts, but maybe other people have some some thoughts. My initial thought is I think um, because of that post-industrial revolution sort of setup a lot of people's fathers are just, were more absent uh, because the norm was that they they were. Um, and also those stereotypes or models of fathering that sort of allowed fathers to be disengaged. Um, and I think all, all of a sudden I have things to say about this. Uh, yeah, I think there's, there's not great models of, of masculinity uh, that are... Um, Emotionally um, intelligent, um, uh, and but I think men are very emotional um, and affectionate, <laughs> and um, can can act. So I, I don't know. I think I think there's there's so there's models of what the marriage looks like with the husband gone. There's models of what a father is like, but then it's also just models of, assumptions about what being a man is, mm-hmm. um, that I think, um, make intimacy and vulnerability equated with weakness, which is just not true. Yeah. I mean, it's not easy. Like, yeah, vulnerable, I don't, I don't really like vulnerability, um,
5: you do good practice is you kind of learn about them and so he's always like analyzing people and finding things and so something that he's kind of said as a trend is like men aren't always as comfortable with having emotions because they have them there's just a, a degree like articulating and recognizing them and he's like most men seem to be most comfortable with the emotion of anger so if they have an emotion they're more likely to interpret it anger whether or not it is so, yeah, I think that there's, there's a, a bit of, like, accepting
1: emotions and then how to communicate them. And I think sometimes, you yeah, am not culturally like, expected or understood or comfortable. So. Yeah, Marguerite was just making the note that uh, men tend to, or, or, or stereotypically or, or commonly are more comfortable with anger, um, with expressing that particular emotion. Yeah, I, you know, I have my own thoughts on on that but I'll just speak for myself often, for me anger often is hurt that I don't know what to do with yeah it is easier is much easier for me. I can go to anger more quickly than I can to the vulnerability of admitting uh, that I'm I'm hurt've um, <laughs> been angry so much recently I must be really hurting <laughs> if anybody, Gosh that's no, getting vulnerable up here. <laughs> All right, someone ask a question quick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. More comment. Uh, this is a, con- a comic,
6: because I was thinking about this. We read, I don't know, we're dinner table, we my lunch table a few days ago. We were reading from Farmer Boy, which is yeah. really, which is Lauren Goldwilder, but about her husband's kind of going answer. It really is, I think, a lot of. Alonzo and his father yeah. is in, in a pre-industrial yeah. farming like, community. And um, the section that I read, they go to cut ice and um, Alonzo falls in for water. And like one of the guys who's helping pulls him out and his dad says, you know, I, gotta give, I, I should give you the worst woman of your life for being so foolish. <laughs> uh, he doesn't. Um, mm-hmm. But... I think just, like, that interaction, like, just really illustrates your point of, like, the father taking it really seriously, like, moral instruction, and, but also, like, expressing care in that as well, even though it wasn't maybe, like, particularly or, like, cuddly. Yeah. Um, I, I, yeah, I think it's whole to read things that are from other times that help us have other pictures other their metaphors or images.
1: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Esther was just talking about Farmer Boy, which is a great book by Laura Ingalls Wilder that gives another image of a father-son relationship from a pre-industrial time. Yeah, I mean, that. I mean, even just thinking about Farmer Boy just leads to, like, all... It just opens my mind up to all the things that I would have loved to talk about, but just mm-hmm. didn't, you know, that a father... Especially, I, I, I don't think it's exclusively a father, necessarily, but... Yeah, it helps push push children out in the world and give competence and confidence and challenge, um, which Almanzo's dad, yeah, definitely does, and takes them takes them seriously um, as not just to nurture them, but to sort of to to push off and and um, you know kind of further each time, and um, also the role. I just thinking of that book, the role of discipline, um, and sort of uh, giving kids a bigger story to live in than, mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah, anyway, that's it's a I, I enjoy that book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sloan. Yeah. Um, well,
6: yeah, that's interesting that you, so to circle back to your question about but um, that motherly love sort of is the love that we come from, this unconditional love, it's our starting point, and our whole lives we are using and we're trying to move um, away from that so that we can develop ourselves and into sort of the fatherly love, which is not so embodied. Because, you know, we don't share the same you know, body. There's, we start from a fist interview with the father, and we're yeah. all trying oh. to integrate yeah. and move towards him. Um, and because of that, and it, it, it just requires enough more sort of rational, like um, intellectual and mental component or thought
1: s the thought unconditional but seemingly conditional. Mm. Um, and it causes I think you could be more at least a figure. Mm. Um but so that's more important Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Sloan was talking about what's the name of the book? Uh, the Art of Loving. The art of loving and just differences between mothers and fathers in regards to uh, how they love and I mean that that connect that yeah, I mean I, I did read a number of things talking about um both from more of a scientific and then more, I don't know, maybe soci- or sociological, but yeah, what, what how it is different for a father than it is for a mother, um, in part because uh, of how the mother carries the child for nine months and is, <laughs> is they're, they're sort of one and two at the same time. Um, and yeah, there's, I mean, I remember when both my kids were born. I just thought they smelled unbelievably good. Like, I could not... I could not get enough of it. Like, I just loved smelling their heads. It was this... You know, and they're not necessarily, like, clean. Um,
3: <laughs> but it was
1: just... You know, I loved it. And then I had a friend say, like, yeah, it was just, like... He said, evolved. It's designed that way to, so that you get attached to it. So that you care. Because, like, you don't... You know, like, there's a sense where the father can just walk away in in a way that a mother, mother can't, or a mother already has uh, been attached. Anyway, it was just interesting to me to think about some of that. I the idea of raising.
6: i never before, but the that Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, and I think mothers raise children too. I don't think, it's just no, like, but yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah, the but, but yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Sarah, did you have your hand up? Or? Yeah,
3: I was just thinking of. I guess my mind was going back to your title question. You know, what are fathers for? And um, thinking about the like the significant um, act of blessing. Yeah. That I'm, fathers do throughout the biblical narrative and even like the words of God the Father over Jesus' baptism mm-hmm. like they're words of blessing mm-hmm. um, and I yeah I wonder how much of the father wound is a just a lack of blessing like mm-hmm. blessing of substance you know mm. not just like had a boy, you know, kind of like, mm. great job getting an A on that test, or you hit a home run, or you know, whatever. Kind of like, have back for performance, mm-hmm. but like a deep yes to this person's existence. <laughs> and mm. um, yeah, so I don't know. I'm, I'm curious. I mean, I think you have found your own words of mm-hmm. blessing to give to Jacob and Willie really mm-hmm. each night, like that's essentially what you're mm-hmm. doing when you say, like, mm-hmm. I'm so glad to be your dad, mm-hmm. and I'm so glad to be my son for my daughter mm-hmm. um, yeah, I just wanted to, I guess maybe reflect that back to you, but also mm-hmm. ask yeah, yeah. if you have other thoughts about that role of being a, a conveyor.
4: A
1: blessing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Sarah made the connection between the father wound and um, the absence of a father's blessing. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it's... Yeah, it's... it's. I, I, uh, yeah, I, I don't know what to say exactly. I think it's... Um, Yeah, I, you know, we've had people tell us that, like, my my parents uh, told me they loved me, but I never thought they liked me, mm-hmm. you know, and so, like, there's a sense, too, of, yeah, you can say, like, there's so many things we can just say, mm-hmm. um, but, yeah, there's, I mean, blessing in ancient cultures is pretty different than yeah. just, you know, saying, I love you at night, but, like... Um, yeah, to be unsure of, of you know. So it's interesting, like, um, it's going to take me a second to pull this all together. But, like, um, yeah, there are, like, when, um, in Genesis, where it talks about the two shall become one, there's Jewish rabbis that were like, that one is the child. The two create one, like the become verb has different connotations only and so like your your so, what it means to be you to exist is dependent upon these two others like they give you your your being and you know they talked about like how if you if a parent dies or you know divorce it is like you lose yourself <laughs> like the thing that made you you disappears who who are you? You know, like um and that just yeah, that just makes me think about yeah, I think many people don't know who they come from. No don't know who, who they who they are because they don't know who they come from or they don't know what that source thinks about them, what they make of them if they just tolerate them. Like and I, I think that's quite a that's quite a heavy burden. <sighs> Like, it's quite exhausting. I think it then sends you to other places to look for it. I mean, not that just blessing your kid is going to keep them from running off and, you know, the prod- prodigal sunning it up or whatever. Um,
0: as long as they know what you smell. As long as you know, yeah,
1: what they <laughs> smell like, exactly. Um, but, yeah, I I think it's a really good... I, if other people have any thoughts, I'm I'm all ears. But, yeah, if you're well,
4: uh, I just finished Genesis yesterday and the day before, and it's interesting that Jacob's blessings at the end of Genesis are not always kind words.
2: Yeah.
4: They're 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 kind of harsh in in, in the case of some. And uh, but even in that harshness, I think there's a level of intimacy mm-hmm. or of knowledge yeah, yeah, of, yeah. Of, of the child that. Uh, Allows or even compels that blessing, so, so to speak. But 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 it is. Uh, I mean, I've never really thought of what, what blessing means in the case or in the context of the Hebrew uh, mm-hmm. uh, culture. And, but, but but I don't think it's it, well. At least from Jacob's standpoint, it doesn't necessarily mean. Something that a child would necessarily want to hear, hmm. but perhaps should.
2: Hmm. Well, that's good. Yeah, yeah,
4: yeah.
1: Yeah.
7: Um, I guess just a, a comment and a yeah. question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, wow. it's, it's stirring to hear your and memories from the birth of your firstborn child because I'm a father of three. And Mm -hmm. I guess, especially since you said you're you're having in mind those who um, um, maybe think the task of fatherhood is a daunting thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, It's a lot of work and a huge responsibility. But, I mean, there's nothing that compares to that joy. Like, it is the most amazing thing. Like, I mean, like highlight of my life. Amazing thing to see a child born into the world, and I feel like people didn't really emphasize this to me before I was married, um, and I have to acknowledge people talk about it since I've been married. Yeah. But it is just, it is the most incredible, beautiful thing ever. Like, there's nothing that compares to it. Like, your heart is instantly, like, like I, I totally get what you're saying. Like, yeah. <laughs> totally yeah. one with that child, and it is just a precious, incredible thing. Um, and uh, so, I guess that's, just, that's my comment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's just, it's, it's a gift. Uh, I guess my question is just: uh, it was really interesting the industrial revolution how it just changed, like the economically how things worked out, and just thinking about like. Um, my wife and I, like, our responsibility to raise and care for and love our children. And, like, and I know different families are just different ways. You know, some for some families, there's kind of a home war. For some families, like, both like, spouses are gone and they have, like, a relative or I hire someone to watch the kids most of the time. Um, and just, in this day in society, like, when you think about uh, motherhood and fatherhood, like, should we just think about it in just a kind of uh, like for instance like if a mother is to be the primary raising like there's something that the kids are getting in particular that they wouldn't with the father the father's a primary person that's raising the children and I mentioned like statistics from jail and fatherless I mean it's fatherless not probably just less father like no father but like how do we think about that as far as what what is both a mother
1: um, and the father provide you to help the child be a whole person. Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. <clears throat> yeah, Andrew was commenting on um, the birth of children as just a joyful reality um, that he wasn't aware of until having them, um, and then asking the question of what what does a father bring, what does a mother bring, what's what's gained and lost between. Between, like, uh, if it's one is the primary and the other is the primary, yeah. I mean, I think I I would really I would not know, like, in a comprehensive way how to answer that. I think um, I I think families can look pretty different and still be quite quite healthy, um, but I do think involvement uh, of both parents. Uh, through each each phase uh, is helpful and i I wonder especially as I'm thinking about this as Jacob in particular is getting to become a teenager um, and yeah being more deliberate on making events uh, with or, or, or moments with him that we learn things like courage and challenge, and we, we go do things, you know? And also, get, I don't know, gave a positive vision of what masculinity looks like for him uh, that's not, you know, misogyny or whatever. Um, uh, and wondering if, yeah, as Lily gets older, too. And, um, you know, I want to model to both of my children, um, to Jacob, how do you treat women? And I want Lily to have very high expectations of how she should be treated uh, by a man because of how I treat her, because of how Jacob treats her, and how, you know, we... Anyway, um, I'm just sort of rambling because I don't totally know how to... how to answer that that question in a comprehensive way. But I... I, um, Yeah, does anyone have any thoughts, Peter?
4: If... Uh, n- 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 not too much a thought, but... If you want to add to your library yeah. on this, um, I would recommend a book called A Bully Father, Teddy Roosevelt's Letters to His Children, because hmm. it's a it's a brilliant volume of Teddy Roosevelt and his relationship to his children, and, and he being sort of this larger-than-life character. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's really interesting to see how he... Uh, Kind of combines this almost hyper masculinity with a really tender touch, mm. and it's a uh, and and part of it I think is because he uh, he just had a I think a good sense of who he was mm. as a person mm. and uh, did not try to be someone else. Uh, mm. So it's uh, I, I read it because Teddy Roosevelt one of my presidential heroes but, but I was kind of surprised at, at how uh, how lovely a volume that was
1: oh hmm. yeah it's uh, Peter just recommended uh, bully it's called a bully father a bully Andrew father Roosevelt's letters to his children Teddy Roosevelt's letters to his children anyone else have any anything maybe to say to Andrew's question or any other unrelated one or yeah, anything? I'm not
0: apparent, oh. but I'm thinking about like Jacob's life and like how he received affection from mm-hmm. his mother but he wasn't like technically supposed to be giving the blessing from his father mm-hmm. and then the wrestling scenario in Genesis 32 where he says I won't let like, you honest you bless me mm. um, so it does seem to be some sort of like Vacuum in his life and in
2: his heart that he was searching for even in adulthood
0: um, and kind of bouncing around, kind of deceiving people along mm-hmm. the way. Um, so I think that's a case study for that, maybe. Um, huh. like um, I don't know if there's a good parallel of like the neglect from a mother in scripture, but that definitely seems like hmm. the both. Pretty, it seems pretty important because so I think he got
1: attention from Rebecca, it seems like. Yeah. Um, it seems like they both favorites a his parents, which is hard. Yeah. Yeah. Taylor was just talking about Jacob in the Old Testament uh, not getting affection from his father, but getting it from his mother, and then later wrestling with the angel and not letting go until he gets the blessing, which he didn't get from his father, which, yes, yeah, I've never heard it that way. Or, or made those connections, so that's, that is quite an interesting um, case study, yeah, or instance, yeah, did you just make that up, or did you just put that
0: together, uh, I guess, I, I'm, I'm probably writing, like, Tim
6: Keller, <laughs> that's one
0: of my best, or favorite.
1: Marilyn oh, Robinson did it. it, yeah, 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 Tim yeah, yeah,
0: Tim
2: Keller, I guess, yeah,
3: yeah, right. yeah, yeah,
7: so.
1: yeah, were you going to say something, Sarah?
3: Uh, yes. Uh, but I want to like piggyback on that and then Peter's observation about blessings being hard words at times, mm-hmm. too. I think, I think it's also uh, consistent with names being hard things. Like Jacob's name has a very difficult meaning mm-hmm. to live with. And mm-hmm. even in choosing that name for our own son, you know, like, our daughter like, my name's Lily, I've named that for a flower. And James like, I'm a deceiver. <laughs> um, you know, but to be like actually you have a name that encapsulates a narrative of wrestling with God and and not letting go until you hear the words of blessing over you. And so I don't know, I mean I I need to go back and read those Blessings, maybe at the end of Genesis, maybe yeah. okay, gives to the sons again, but you know, someone who has done the long, hard work of wrestling with their own name <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. would know then mm-hmm. the importance of blessings that speak hard truths, mm-hmm. you know, and actually call something out of your children. Um, mm-hmm. That's it Anyway, that was the feedback. My other thought was more of the like, okay, what's what's missing um, Piece if a parent is a primary caregiver and the other one is not as involved, maybe. It's totally anecdotal, but I have noticed because our lives are so together all the time, and our kids are so used to having both of us all the time, when Joshua's not home, the anxiety level goes up significantly um, in our kids, and um, both of them, you know, are have a hard time going to sleep, wake up, come in bed, you know, like so. There's, I don't know if that kind of like points back to that other half of that quote you started with about the father putting the lid on. Yeah, the chaos yeah, or yeah, something. yeah,
1: yeah, which like is huge. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah
3: that's what it made me think of like there's something
1: about a fatherly presence that that does communicate security yeah yeah I was just laughing because when you when you leave it's like party time like (laughs) (laughs) macaroni and cheese for breakfast yeah yeah yeah. it's uh, It's not fair uh, (laughs) I don't (laughs) I don't necessarily do that but yeah (laughs) <laughs> okay, I can scrub that from the, <laughs> from the recording.
2: Um, yeah.
5: I think there's also like having both parents is like there's a degree of modeling of like how do you treat other people. So I think that's something, yeah, which is not particularly mother's in really thought of, but like how do you listen to that other person? How do you challenge them? How do you interact? And I think, yeah, having both parents like, doing life together or mm-hmm. helps kids understand how.
1: This um this book, The Intentional Father, um is is pretty intense, uh, for being small and um but one of the things it's doing is it's he has a son and he walked through like a deliberate multi year basically path of initiation into manhood. With his son, and he said, uh, like, basically, I don't want you to be a good man. I want you to be good at being a man. And he doesn't have a very defined, sort of rigid, strict view of what being a man is. Like, it's 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 uh, it includes a lot of things. A lot of it's like taking responsibility and and showing care. But like, he. there's all these rites of passage throughout his son's life that he encourages that I, I think making moments is actually really important. Um, and it started, started in one way and in another way. But one of the steps was, um, which I, I still, I, I, I'm not totally sure exactly how I feel about this, but, I, uh, but he had a, um, the son had a severance ceremony with his mother. Where she took him out to dinner, her fa- like their favorite restaurant, and I, they, she gave him a number of gifts, um, but said to him, like, "I will always be your mother. I will always be there for you." But like, for the next few years, I want you to go to your your father for kind of help with your emotional needs, with your questions, for him to model. you um this and so it's not a severance in regards of like we're done like so long like but it was just sort of trying to give make a moment and say like he's gonna help like I'm still with you I'm still around but he's gonna show you these particular things because um because he's a man and your, your your goal is to be a man um Of course, being a man means learning from women. (laughs) Like, so uh, that's also part of that that process. Um, So it's not like he was then free from his mom or like moved up some sort of whatever. But anyway, just so uh, I was just really struck by it. I I really, yeah. There's a part of me that.
5: um, Were even like a woman saying like you need. Do. you need you need that
1: too so yeah her treatment of father is also like yeah like so anyway it was just it's an yeah and then um yeah i've never i've never heard of something like that before <laughs> um but anyway that was just one <laughs> one thought from that book on what fathers maybe do that or need to do um Actually, I'll, I'll read this, too, just because I think it's interesting. He talks about there's five um, five shifts that need to happen. Just think of this as these are the five shifts. He actually got these from uh, Richard Rohr. So, uh, but, uh, but it's this. These are the five rules. Life is hard. You are not important. Your life is not about you. You are not in control. You are going to die. (laughs) Those are the five shifts that he wanted to instill in his son over multiple years. And he reframed them. So he said, instead of saying life is hard, he said, it's a shift from easy to difficulty. Instead of saying you're not important, I said, boys take care of themselves, but men care about others. Instead of saying your life is not about you, I said you're part of the story, but you're not the whole story. Instead of saying you're not in control, I said it's a shift from control to surrender. Uh, Instead of saying you're going to die, I said it's a shift from the temporary to the eternal. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, and he, um, he also talks about envisioning basically the day your son leaves the house. And what do you want him to be ready for? And I'm like, you've got time between wherever you are in that day so that he's ready. And uh, I was like, oh. I guess, I guess my son will need to be ready uh, for things. <laughs>
5: yeah, think about that as a teacher. Like, what kind of kid am I handing
2: the world? Oh, like, or who am
8: I handing to the next teacher Yeah. Yeah, yeah Nikola. I, I think back it any conversations regarding students and the countless students we have who have said, well, I don't really know my dad or no. my dad doesn't really know me. And how we don't hear that as much about mothers. Mm-hmm. And I, I do wonder about just the differentiation of roles in the home. Of, you know, it is hard to trust somebody you don't feel like you know uh, or we know it's uh-huh. you. And, I just think about the different models that we see of fatherhood and fathers who are much more engaged mm-hmm. your children obviously trust them more mm-hmm. but I mean this is just sort of in a perfect scenario like obviously that doesn't work all the time for everyone um, but just the gift like the gift of role models and fathering and of the presence of like offering presents to your children at a young age mm-hmm. and um, and just both parents being like that the trusting unit, mother and father instead sort of like oh I can always trust my mom but I can never trust my dad mm-hmm. you know um, and just parents as a team like as a unit <laughs> um that is not something that I feel is talked about often in, mar- in
2: marriage.
1: Mm, like, yeah, yeah. Um, like being trustworthy parents, like a yeah. father or your community. Yeah. This, um, sorry, I keep going back to the. Michaela was making a comment about somehow how fathers are unknown, and then they're sort of untrust, untrustworthy, and parents need to work, that sometimes comes from differentiation of roles in a household, and just working together as a team to be present, to build trust, like in kids, and uh, one of the quotes um, that is, through, like, what do you call a quote that's at the start of a chapter, anyway, um, what is it, a drop
0: quote,
1: a drop quote, Really? Is that what it is, Esther? Epograph? Epigraph? Okay. Yeah.
8: <laughs>
1: I think it's a. It's like the
8: beginning uh, of. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Anyway, sorry. I was. We'll call it a drop a graph. <laughs> um. but, uh, I trust
8: Esther. I trust Esther. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I'm just being nice. Yeah, yeah. But. Um, um. One of the quotes that's in the beginning that is wild to me is, comes from someone named T. Real. Does anyone know who T. Real is? Is It sounds like a rapper. I thought it was a rapper. But I I googled T. Real and really couldn't find anybody. Um, uh, But it says this. Boys do not long for fathers who will usher them through the gauntlet of psychological discontent. They long for fathers who have themselves survived intact. Boys do not ache for their father's masculinity. They ache for their father's hearts. Um, And he... Like time and again in this book is like go for their heart, go for like, and like gain their trust, <laughs> you know, and like get to know them and let them get to know you and, um, yeah, I don't know that line about they ache, a- aching for a father's heart and just if yeah if that's if that's true but you don't trust the per- like that's, that's quite a confusing that does not make the world um, like a secure place it doesn't yeah your place in the world is you can feel fairly adrift um, but yeah anyone else have any other thoughts if not yeah yeah josie
2: about I care for my family. And to, uh, everything um done after to if you have to certain care. And other to one one that they see their role model to uh, other mm. um, To help out other kind families. Of have an
0: intergenerational friendships and you want to have another. Yeah.
2: That yeah. yeah. we're all children of God. And I think one comment mm-hmm. I want to make too about what I admire about what you, how it's different, is that you recognize that in God, being the only one, you can never meet them or think with them. Mm-hmm. I just admire. Humility sure, like, like mm-hmm. and that in some ways they're like to are conscious to, a time to the of the pain and you like manage that well. Enough, like, things like that in the way of the world, that to sell, you the Lord is about the Yeah, everything
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Chelsea was asking about um, uh, just thoughts on the church being a family, a new family, a different family that, that cares for cares for one another, um, and creates creates a different sort of family, um, and how that how that um, yeah, it plays out, and I mean, yeah, I, I definitely, um, you know, uh, there are, there are other, like friends of mine who I want Jacob to look to, <laughs> to sort of be like, this is someone to look up to, you know, because I know that we're gonna have our relationship. Well, I don't know. Most likely, our relationship will go through highs and lows and there will be times where trust is lost because of mistakes i make or things i say And but knowing that there's other people in his life other other men um uh that he knows to some extent you know and and has some trust in um dave's one of them uh <laughs> ben who's normally here is one of them but like um yeah i think that's invaluable like i think it's incredibly involved like it's so that's so beautiful um, and you just made a comment about what uh, what we say and I I uh, want I I'm not like the best um, like creed person not the band creed uh, but like um, I'm a huge creed fan no just kidding uh, but like but there's a catechism the, the uh, Heidelberg catechism I think is like a really exceptional I love the creeds. Sorry, I wasn't trying to say I'm against the creeds, but I'm, um, I'm off. I'm all in on the creeds. But um, uh, there's one catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism, that I think just touches on the human condition right away. In the very like, it's it's a series of questions and answers. Um, it came out of the Dutch church, uh, Dutch Reformed Church, and um, the first, and this is. Like my I also used to ask this at night, and this started because uh, my son was really nervous about dying and um anyway, the catechism says um what is your only comfort in life and death this says that i the answer to the question is that I am not my own, but I belong body and soul to my faithful Savior Jesus Christ, and like it just gave words that And it just brought up, like, I love that it just, I just love that it uses the word comfort and belong. And actually, this book, you know, You Are Not Your Own, I haven't finished the book yet, but I think that's where he's going, or where he gets the title from. But yeah, I found it, like, it was really existentially helpful for my son to think about, like, finding comfort, like, where where do I, like, what's comfort? Like, what's comfort? Like, his bed is comfortable, like like his blankets and like that's where he finds comfort. Or but thinking about that, like all right, if Jesus finding comfort in Jesus that Jesus has died, he's gone through death, and he said that if if I trust in him, I'll die, but that he'll raise me up again. And it, I it, I don't know. I was like those were really <laughs> those were just helpful like concepts even for a little person and you know, just a plug to. At least memorize the first, the first question in the catechism. Um, yeah, both of my kids can say it. I don't know if they, I don't think they can say the rest of it. Um, but um, I don't know. Yeah. Anyway. But anyone else have any other thoughts? <laughs> I'm sorry, I just randomly rambled on that. Uh, thoughts on the church and families and um, if not. I'm happy to call it a night or take one more. Okay. All right. Thank you all for coming out. Yeah.